Ladies and gentlemen, brethren and sistren, welcome back to another episode of Tawahedo Bible Study. This should be published on May the 4th, 2020, in the year of our Lord. Today we will be examining the scroll of Jacob, chapter 4. As always, I want to encourage you to subscribe. Whatever platform you're on, subscribe. Make sure you're subscribed on Spotify or on Apple, or on Google, or if you'd like, on all of the above. And then if you want to know what you can do to help this ministry, you can share. The simplest thing that anyone could do at any time is share it. Share it with your parents, share it with your friends, your neighbors, your enemies, your strangers, with anyone. And then if you feel that you can, try to help us financially so that we could expand this ministry in many different avenues. You can go to patreon.com slash tawahado, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash t-e-w-a-h-i-d-o to see the details of what that entails. So I like to switch off in different Bible versions just to show you how unattached and nonchalant I am in regards to different English translations. Remember that the biblical languages are Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. And so those are king. Those are the most important. English is not that important. But here I am speaking and spending all this time in the English language. So today I'm going with the RSV or the Revised Standard Version, but we're going to be examining other versions as well. I'm using my browser or online RSV. I also have a print RSV that comes from Oxford and that is annotated. I also have with me my Lexum English Septuagint, and I also examined the New King James Version-based Orthodox, so-called Orthodox Study Bible. Checked those footnotes as well. And, of course, I have the Greek Orthodox Bible, which is a New Testament-only translation, Next to me, I didn't really examine it today. I have the Kingdom New Testament from N.T. Wright. It's just to show you the breadth of different versions I have. I also have an audio version from David Bentley Hart, who's kind of on the opposite level of extreme, where the N.T. Wright version is extremely thought for thought and thus uh, more dynamic. We have David Bentley Hart's more word for word and more literal. All of this helps me. I also examine online from time to time the mounts interlinear so that I could do Google searches or whichever search engine like DuckDuckGo in Greek dictionaries to find the meanings of particular words that stick out to me and that confuse me. Okay, let's begin with verses 1 to 3. And remember, we're in the scroll of Jacob, chapter 4, also known as James. What causes wars and what causes fightings among you? Is it not your passions that are at war in your members? You desire and do not have, so you kill. And you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and wage war. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. This word passions comes up a lot 
in the writings of the fathers, known as the patristics. Passions here is not about someone who's a passionate person, as we may say in the vernacular, in common English. Passions here refers to those innate, those inside, those natural, primal drives of the human being. Sometimes people refer to them, especially the ancients, as spirits. It is without accident that when you see liquor stores, they seem to be offering spirits because those spirits encourage envy and murder, anger, all sorts of passions. And this is what the Apostle Jacob is talking about here. Without delving into politics too much, of the many political issues, I do stratify them. And for me, the most appalling is war. I make no ifs, ands, and buts about it. If you ever ask me in a different avenue, I could explain how I believe war is simply a sanitized way of referring to mass murder. So I'm anti-war, I'm a peacenik. And the greatest purveyor of war is the U.S. federal government. It causes the most harm. It is the most harmful to outsiders. And so I abominate that. And here, the Apostle Jacob is using this hyperbolic language in regards to this nascent or early Jewish Christian community whom he is pastoring or shepherding or ministering to. And it's, an, it's very important. It's actually very prophetic because after this happens, there is an event that I'll get to at the end of my little tenetane or examination of verses one to three. But first, I want to begin by, by asking you, especially the men, to understand, because I'm a man who's comfortable in my masculinity, I have to ask, why is it that it seems that men are the ones who start wars? Have we ever, in the history of humankind, seen a war started by women, ran only by women, women only engaging in the war, and then ended by a woman? I've never seen such a thing. One of the most courageous women in the United States history is Jeanette Rankin. She was a woman in Congress. I believe she may have been one of the first, if not the first. And she said no in her voting for World War I and for World War II. She was the single no vote. That is an amazing amount of courage, an amazing amount of faithfulness, in my opinion, to the peace of the Lord who is the Prince of Peace. Ephraim the Syrian, who the Gizrite attributes Uddasi Maryam, or the praise of Mary to, has this phrase that comes up a lot in his writing. Without the seed of man. Without the seed of man. Without the will of man. This is the difference between Ishmael and Isaac or Isaac. Ishmael is a result of the Zarab Isi. He is a result of the seed of man, the will of man trying to impose his will in the world, rather than trying to be obedient to the instruction of the Lord. Through the instruction of the Lord, we have a child of promise, a child that does not come from the seed of man, nor from the will of man, Isaac, who is a type of Christ. So that's something to reflect on. In our church communities, to make this functional to us, we have to ask ourselves, do we see people who are spreading anger that leads to killing and murder? Do we see people that have a Buddha, that have an evil eye, that are jealous of others? 
do we see the grace that some people have? And rather than sharing in that grace for the glory of God to the spreading of his gospel, do we see people asking, uh, acting, excuse me, jealously, acting enviously? I ask this rhetorically, one, because you can't answer me right now because you're just listening to me, and two, because I know it is the case that in Ethiopian communities, a, a trouble that we have is not being able to play off of each other's talents. Professor Masfen Waldemariam long ago said it was this reason why the Ethiopians are phenomenal at running, a sport which is an individual sport, and yet terrible at soccer at the international level, which takes great collaboration. And yet, our own sayings, we have plethora, a plethora, a multitude of sayings in Amharic that promote collaboration and cooperation. If you gather a web together, you can ensnare a lion. If you have 50 lemons that you need to do some labor with, for one person, that's a burden. It's heavy. It's burdensome. And yet, for 50 people, that's their ornament. It's their beauty. It looks good on them. So we have to examine our own traditions and see how aligned we are, how collaborative we are, versus how much we are spreading this war and this fighting that the Apostle Jacob is warning about. Now, sucking ourselves back into the realm of Scripture, in the first century, there were a group of Jews. Some of them were Jewish Christians. Some of them were simply Jews. And they were known as zealots. Zealots were one of many sects. There were Essenes, there were Sadducees, there were Pharisees, there were plain old Christians. There are all these groups, but one of them are called zealots. So the zealots walk around with the swords, right? So those are the, you see the Christian zealot is the one who has a sword and tries to cut someone's ear off, and then Jesus heals it back. So these zealots existed within the Christian ranks and within the general Jewish ranks. Judaism is very diverse at the time. And so the zealots, their ultimate goal was to have their Messiah, their king, their son of God come and destroy the son of God who is known as Caesar. Caesar calls himself the son of God. So they wanted the sons of God to do battle and they wanted their son of God to defeat the other one. And that's what they wanted Jesus to do all the time. That's why they were hyped. That's why they were excited. They want to win a military battle a set of military battles, of conquest. Now, what were the results of the efforts of this physical insurrection? What were the results of this revolt, this rebellion against Caesar, and indeed this rebellion against the instruction of the apostle Jacob himself who's advising these people, who is like these people, who is one of the Judaizers mentioned as pillars, or at least apparent pillars in the epistle to the Galatians. So what is going on here? He warns them not to have wars and fighting. They have war with Rome. And in 70 AD, the Romans utterly crushed them. There are no zealots today. They were wiped off the face of the earth. And that nascent Jewish community and Jewish Christian community in Jerusalem, of which James or Jacob, the brother of the Lord, the apostle whom we're speaking about here, was bishop over, the territory he was bishop over, that area was destroyed. And to this day, the Jews had to make up a new form of Judaism. 
because without a temple, they couldn't make temple sacrifice. So they canceled their Kohanim, they canceled their priest, and they said, let's have just Rabim, let's just have rabbis, which are teachers. And so they had, they got rid of the temple and they just have synagogues. Now, some people's synagogues nowadays, they'll call them temple, but it's not a real temple. A real temple, check your Bibles. You need animal sacrifice. They don't have that. Thankfully for us, it's one of the things that we got rid of because we got our sacrifice through Jesus. But in any event, watch out for zealotry. Verses 4 to 10. Unfaithful creatures. Other versions here say adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is in vain that the scripture says, He yearns jealously over the spirit which he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you men of double mind. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to dejection. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. So as I said, here we see unfaithful creatures in the RSV. That's in my browser. Other versions say adulteress, and this is reminiscent of Ezekiel 16 and Hosea 1, where we see that the people of Israel, right, not Jacob Israel, but the Israelites who are his descendants and who carry his name, who carry the presence that comes with his name, that also carries the presence of the Lord whose name is in there, right? Israel, the people who contend with God or who do jujitsu with God, as I said in an earlier episode, they are called a harlot communally. They are called a whore. I'm sure some polite version of the scriptures one day will refer to them as sex workers. And that is because they cheat on the Lord. The idea of faithfulness is huge. The idea of loyalty is huge in the scriptures. When the Lord rails on the hypocrites, the Sadducees and the Pharisees in the gospel according to Matthew chapter 23, he refers to the weightier matters of the law. There are a lot of matters in the law, over 600 matters, but he refers to the weightier matters of the law. One of those that he refers to is faithfulness. And so we have to be very careful to be faithful to our God, who is clearly faithful to us. There's a dichotomy here or a binary. We have two options. We choose to be faithful or loyal to the world or loyal to God. Which one will we choose, God or the world, the world or God? We have to make a decision and we have to make it now. We hear that his spirit dwells in us. It dwells in our community, not us as an individual, but in our community that intentionally gathers around the hearing of his word. This is put up as a quote, and this is a verse that has caused many to stumble. I actually sifted through almost all my different versions of the Bible to figure this one out because it took me a while. And I had done a whole series on Jacob before, but I had passed this, so I don't recall this. So I'm learning as well with you. It's a process. This is not a direct quote. The Oxford Annotated Revised Standard Version gives us 
three quotes. I'm not going to read them now, but you could generally understand that what the Apostle Jacob is doing is he's using paraphrasing language. I'm sure you've done that in a school paper before in regards to the Older Testament. So Exodus 20, verse 5, Exodus chapter 20, verse 5, Deuteronomy 4, verse 24, and Zechariah 8, verse 2. Exodus chapter 20, verse 5, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 24, and Zechariah 8, verse 2. That's what the Oxford annotated RSV invites us to examine to see if the Apostle Jacob's interpretation or paraphrasing of Scripture is accurate. The next line is actually a direct quote from Scripture, and it's a reminder that neither the Greek Septuagint nor the Hebrew Masoretic text are perfect. What is perfect is whatever the original Hebrew was, and that's lost to the sands of time, at least right now. So what we have to do is take the Masoretic text and take the Greek text and just work with what we have. There is a human hand involved in this, and so we have to realize that. And so the reason we're reminded of this is because Proverbs 3.34 in the Greek text is actually closer to what the New Testament authors are using and what they're quoting from. And so here the Greek text is more accurate. But in other places, and even within the Greek text, we're told to look at the Hebrew text. So we do not get out of this situation easily. So I'll read for you the, the um, New King James Version, which is closer to the Hebrew. Here it says, Surely he scorns the scornful, excuse me, surely he scorns the scornful, but gives grace to the humble. In my Lexham English Septuagint, here it says, The Lord opposes the arrogant but he gives the humble grace. The Lord opposes the arrogant, but he gives the humble grace. Match that with verse 6 here in chapter 4 of the scroll of Jacob, and tell me which one you find to be more accurate. Now, those are contributions from the Bible I have. For me, it brings to mind the Magnificat. It's called the Ta'abbio in the Gizrite tradition, and it's part of our daily prayers. It's the prayer that Mary prays in Luke chapter 1. Especially we can look at verses 51 and 52, where she says prayerfully in her song, He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of low degree. In Amharic, the root word for humble is actually the very same as low. And so it's as if we say the word lowly. I actually like English translations that say lowly, because I think it, it really brings this idea of up and down, all the dichotomies and binaries we find in Scripture. And we see how we're moved by that in the poetry of the Syriac and the Ge'ez rites, as well as the Scriptures, which all maintain the Semitic mindset. You, you have these things that are put in op opposition to each other. We have these hyperboles, these dichotomies, these binaries, so that we can understand how to choose up how to be faithful, how to be loyal. And here we have the devil or the slanderer, and this slanderer or devil is no boogeyman, no jorok orach or ear cutter, no chupacabras or goat sucker, no el cucuy. He's not someone to be afraid of. He's someone to resist, and he'll run away from you. He'll flee from you. Especially if I have younger members of the audience listening to this, please, please, don't worry about some goat demon looking thing. Don't worry about a red man with horns. 
There's nothing to be afraid of. There's nothing scary about the devil. We need to make fun of him. We need to spit on him and deny him. And we do that through our thoughts, words, and deeds when we align them by drawing nearer to God, by trying to be more and more worthy of receiving his communion and by following his commandments. Verses 11 to 12. Do not speak evil against one another, brethren. He that speaks evil against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you that you judge your neighbor? An issue amongst Protestants today, but also some ancient authors and even some current folks in the Orthodox tradition is that they want to bind God. The Protestants will say they were saved in a moment, in a flash. It was in high school. It was in middle school. It was in college. It was at this revival or that. And then they want to trap God and say they're automatically saved no matter what they do. And that's it. It's just a beautiful thought. That's all you got to do is pray Jesus in your heart. That goes against him as judge. That makes us a judge of the law rather than a doer of the law. Some old Orthodox folks, Marisak, Isaac the Syrian, one of my favorites, can be guilty of this at times. You could see in the way he describes the love of God in its boundlessness and his mercy. You can see this in Gregory, who is listed, right? St. Gregory uh, is listed and quoted often. We also find this in Origen, and I know Origen is a more complicated figure for some people. We see this in David Bentley Wright, who I quoted earlier. I think he has a phenomenal way of writing. It's just beautiful English, okay? And then if you see his New Testament, it's it's fantastic. But in that act, he has to put as best as he can, even though it's his own influence, he has to put the word of God forward. But when you see his latest work, what you hear is really a Neoplatonism that tries to trap God in a corner, saying you must save everyone. The truth about God is he's judge. That means in my trade of arbitration, it's an arbitral award, a decision, an opinion. Judges and arbitrators are paid salary or commission for delivering their opinion and having it read aloud or recited. What a wonderful job to be paid for your opinion. God is not getting paid by us, and yet his opinion matters, and his opinion will be recited on the final day, on the second coming or the second advent, when our Lord and Savior Jesus comes to judge all those who've ever lived and judge all those who've ever lived. In that moment, he can destroy everyone or he could save everyone, or he could save some people and destroy others. The point is that decision is his. If we try to say that it's anyone else's, if we try to predetermine what that is, woe to us. Even Paul warned us that he himself need to watch out if he was standing, lest he fall. He warns us that we need to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. He warns us that there are those in the process and having a fragrance of perishing, I-N-G, gerund. And there are those who have the fragrance of Christ 
who are being saved. So the scriptures are clear. What we do is up to us. Respect Jesus as judge. 13 to the end. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and get gain. Whereas you do not know about tomorrow, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and we shall do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Whoever knows what is right to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Beautiful. In Ecclesiastes, we hear vanity, 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 vanity a million times. In Genesis, we hear Abel. In the work on the Bible as Literature podcast, Father Mark Bulos and Dr. Richard Benton have mentioned to us many times that Hebel, the Hebrew word that is used in the beginning of Ecclesiastes and is used in the story of Abel for Cain and Abel, is a vanishing breath. It's a fleeting breath. It's here one day, gone the next. It's very temporary. Our lives are this way, and the scriptures remind us that in many different other times. We get very cocky about the future. We have limited knowledge. We have uncertainty, and yet we want to navigate this uncertainty with certainty. We want to force and control the future. We want to impose our will on the future itself, on time itself. But we can't do that. We simply can't do that. We have to be humble when we speak about the future. Here, I appreciate the Muslim culture and indeed the Orthodox Christian culture of the Arabic-speaking world, where they say, Inshallah. Inshallah means God willing, Lord willing. This is how we need to speak. This is how we need to behave. I recall an instance where a friend of mine who also identifies as a Christian wanted to corner me and say, are you coming to my event? And I said, God willing, I'll be there. And they're like, no, you need to tell me you're going to be there. And I said, I just told you I'm going to be there. And then they kept texting me and they tried calling me and I had to ignore them because I was like, wow, I think we're going to fight. What's going on? They want me to go against the command of the apostle Jacob, which was firmly in my mind. And I wouldn't go it. We had to sit down for 10 minutes. I had to take the scriptures out, read it to them and show them for us to fully understand what was going on. And eventually we reconciled, our relationship improved. But one thing I did not plan to budge on was on this instruction from the Apostle Jacob. Now, it might be tough sometimes when you're emailing your colleagues, your friends, whatever, to always say God willing. So one kind of uh, fishy way I try to do it in secular environments is I speak of hope and confidence. I say, oh, I hope to see you then. I'm confident we'll see each other here. That's one way in which we can try not being too preachy and yet still not be disobedient to this word. But shout out to you if you are still throwing in an inshallah or God willing or Lord willing in your emails and in your friends. In my, uh, with my friends, especially those who've lived in Egypt and, and elsewhere in the Middle East, I, I love saying inshallah. So if they know the Arabic, I'm going to say inshallah. And if some people's skin crawls, that's because they have not read James 4 or the scroll of Jacob chapter 4 in Arabic and maybe they need to to get a little bit of a Semitic understanding. In any event, 
whether you say Lord willing, God willing, or inshallah, hopefully, confidently, we will hear from each other soon. Glory to God for all things. Oh, <laughs> 